The Confessions of Arsène Lupin by Maurice Leblanc Narrated by Paul Spera Edith Swanneck Arsène Lupin, what's your real opinion of Inspector Ganimard? A very high one, my dear fellow. A very high one? Then why do you never miss a chance of turning him into ridicule? It's a bad habit, and I'm sorry for it. What can I say? It's the way of the world. Here's a decent detective chap. Here's a whole pack of decent men who stand for law and order, who protect us against the Apaches, who risk their lives for honest people like you and me, and we have nothing to give them in return but flouts and jibes. It's preposterous. Bravo, Lupin. You're talking like a respectable taxpayer. What else am I? I may have peculiar views about other people's property, but I assure you that it's very different when my own's at stake. By Jove, it doesn't do to lay hands on what belongs to me. Then I'm out for blood. Aha! It's my pocket, my money, my watch. Hands off. I have the soul of a conservative, my dear fellow, the instincts of a retired tradesman, and a due respect for every sort of tradition and authority. And that is why Ganimar inspires me with no little gratitude and esteem. But not much admiration. Plenty of admiration, too. Over and above the dauntless courage which comes natural to all those gentry at the criminal investigation department, Ganimar possesses very sterling qualities, decision, insight, and judgment. I've watched him at work. He is somebody, when all is said. Do you know the Edith Swanneck story, as it was called? I know as much as everybody knows. That means you don't know it at all. Well, that job was, I dare say, the one which I thought out most cleverly, with the utmost care and the utmost precaution, the one which I shrouded in the greatest darkness and mystery, the one which it took the biggest generalship to carry through. It was a regular game of chess, played according to strict scientific and mathematical rules. And yet, Ganimar ended up by unraveling the knot. Thanks to him, they know the truth today on the Quai des Orfèvres. And it is a truth quite out of the common, I assure you. May I hope to hear it? Oh, certainly. One of these days, when I have time. But the Brunelli is dancing at the opera tonight, and if she were not to see me in my stall... I do not meet Lupin often. He confesses with difficulty, and when it suits him. It was only gradually, by snatches, by odds and ends of confidences, that I was able to obtain the different incidents and to piece the story together in all its details. The main features are well known, and I will merely mention the facts. Three years ago, when the train from Brest arrived at Rennes, the door of one of the luggage vans was found smashed in. This van had been booked by Colonel Sparmiento, a rich Brazilian, who was traveling with his wife in the same train. It contained a complete set of tapestry hangings. The case in which one of these was packed had been broken open and a tapestry had disappeared. Colonel Sparmiento started proceedings against the railway company claiming heavy damages 
not only for the stolen tapestry, but also for the loss and value which the whole collection suffered in consequence of the theft. The police instituted inquiries. The company offered a large reward. A fortnight later, a letter which had come undone in the post was opened by the authorities and revealed the fact that the theft had been carried out under the direction of Arsène Lupin and that a package was to leave next day for the United States. That same evening, the tapestry was discovered in a trunk deposited in the cloakroom at the Gare Saint-Lazare. The scheme, therefore, had miscarried. Lupin felt the disappointment so much that he vented his ill-humor in a communication to Colonel Sparmiento, ending with the following words, which were clear enough for anybody. It was very considerate of me to take only one. Next time, I shall take the twelve. Verbum sap. A.L. Colonel Sparmiento had been living for some months in a house standing at the end of a small garden at the corner of the Rue de la Faisanderie and the Rue du Frenois. He was a rather thick-set, broad-shouldered man with black hair and a swarthy skin, always well and quietly dressed. He was married to an extremely pretty but delicate Englishwoman who was much upset by the business of the tapestries. From the first, she implored her husband to sell them for what they would fetch. The colonel had much too forcible and dogged a nature to yield to what he had every right to describe as a woman's fancies. He sold nothing, but he redoubled his precautions and adopted every measure that was likely to make an attempt at burglary impossible. To begin with, so that he might confine his watch to the garden front, he walled up all the windows on the ground floor and the first floor overlooking the Rue du Frenois. Next, he enlisted the services of a firm which made a specialty of protecting private houses against robberies. Every window of the gallery in which the tapestries were hung was fitted with invisible burglar alarms, the position of which was known to none but himself. These, at the least touch, switched on all the electric lights and set a whole system of bells and gongs ringing. In addition to this, the insurance companies to which he applied refused to grant policies to any considerable amount unless he consented to let three men, supplied by the companies and paid by himself, occupy the ground floor of his house every night. They selected for the purpose three ex-detectives, tried and trustworthy men, all of whom hated Lupin like poison. As for the servants, the colonel had known them for years and was ready to vouch for them. After taking these steps and organizing the defense of the house as though it were a fortress, the colonel gave a great housewarming, a sort of private view, to which he invited the members of both his clubs, as well as a certain number of ladies, journalists, art patrons, and critics. They felt, as they passed through the garden gate, much as if they were walking into a prison. Three private detectives posted at the foot of the stairs asked for each visitor's invitation card and eyed him up and down suspiciously. The three private detectives, posted at the foot of the stairs, asked for each visitor's invitation card and eyed him up and down suspiciously, making him feel as though they were going to search his pockets or take his fingerprints. Colonel, who received his guests on the first floor, made laughing apologies and seemed delighted at the opportunity of explaining the arrangements which he had invented to secure the safety of his hangings. His wife stood by him, looking charmingly young and pretty, 
fair-haired, pale and sinuous, with a sad and gentle expression, the expression of resignation often worn by those who are threatened by fate. When all the guests had come, the garden gates and the hall doors were closed. Then everybody filed into the middle gallery, which was reached through two steel doors, while its windows, with their huge shutters, were protected by iron bars. This was where the twelve tapestries were kept. They were matchless works of art, and taking their inspiration from the famous Bayeux tapestry attributed to Queen Matilda, they represented the story of the Norman Conquest. They had been ordered in the 14th century by the descendant of a man-at-arms in William the Conqueror's train, were executed by Jehan Gosset, a famous Arras weaver, and were discovered 500 years later in an old Breton manor house. On hearing of this, the colonel had struck a bargain for 50,000 francs. They were worth ten times the money. But the finest of the twelve hangings composing the set, the most uncommon because the subject had not been treated by Queen Matilda, was the one which Arsène Lupin had stolen, and which had been so fortunately recovered. It portrayed Edith Swanneck on the battlefields of Hastings, seeking among the dead for the body of her sweetheart Harold, last of the Saxon kings. The guests were lost in enthusiasm over this tapestry, over the unsophisticated beauty of the design, over the faded colors, over the lifelike grouping of the figures and the pitiful sadness of the scene. Poor Edith Swanneck stood drooping like an overweighted lily. Her white gown revealed the lines of her languid figure. Her long, tapering hands were outstretched in a gesture of terror and entreaty, and nothing could be more mournful than her profile, over which flickered the most dejected and despairing of smiles. A harrowing smile, remarked one of the critics, to whom the others listened with deference. A very charming smile, besides. And it reminds me, Colonel, of the smile of Madame Sparmiento. And seeing that the observation seemed to meet with approval, he enlarged upon this idea. There are other points of resemblance that struck me at once, such as the very graceful curve of the neck and the delicacy of the hands, and also something about the figure, about the, the general attitude. What you say is so true, Colonel, that I confess that it was this likeness that decided me to buy the hangings. And there was another reason, which was that, by a really curious chance, my wife's name happens to be Edith. I have called her Edith Swadnick ever since. What you say is so true, said the colonel, that I confess that it was the likeness that decided me to buy the hangings. And there was another reason, which was that, by a really curious chance, my wife's name happens to be Edith. I have called her Edith Swanneck ever since. And the colonel added with a laugh, I hope that the coincidence will stop at this and that my dear Edith will never have to go in search of her true lover's body like a prototype. He laughed as he uttered these words, but his laugh met with no echo, and we find the same impression of awkward silence in all the accounts of the evening that appeared during the next few days. The people standing near him did not know what to say. 
One of them tried to jest. Your name isn't Harold, Colonel. No, thank you, he declared with continued merriment. No, that's not my name, nor am I in the least like the Saxon king. All have since agreed in stating that, at that moment, as the colonel finished speaking, the first alarm rang from the windows. The right or the middle window, opinions differ on this point, rang short and shrill on a single note. The peal of the alarm bell was followed by an exclamation of terror uttered by Madame Sparmiento, who caught hold of her husband's arm. He cried, What's the matter? What does this mean? The guests stood motionless with their eyes staring at the windows. The colonel repeated, What does it mean? I don't understand. No one but myself knows where that bell is fixed. And at that moment, here again the evidence is unanimous, at that moment came sudden, absolute darkness, followed immediately by the maddening din of all the bells and all the gongs from top to bottom of the house, in every room, at every window. For a few seconds, a stupid disorder, an insane terror reigned. The women screamed. The men banged with their fists on the closed doors. They hustled and fought. People fell to the floor and were trampled underfoot. It was like a panic-stricken crowd, scared by threatening flames or by a bursting shell. And above the uproar rose the colonel's voice, shouting, Silence! Don't move! It's all right! The switch is over there, in the corner. Wait a bit. Here! He had pushed his way through the guests and reached a corner of the gallery, and all at once the electric light blazed up again while the pandemonium of bells stopped. Then, in the sudden light, a strange sight met the eyes. Two ladies had fainted. Madame Sparmiento, hanging to her husband's arm, with her knees dragging on the floor and livid in the face, appeared half dead. The men, pale, with their neckties awry, looked as if they had all been in the wars. The tapestries are there, cried someone. There was a great surprise, as though the disappearance of those hangings ought to have been the natural result and the only plausible explanation of the incident. But nothing had moved. Few valuable pictures hanging on the walls were there still, and though the same din had reverberated all over the house, though all the rooms had been thrown into darkness, the detectives had seen no one entering or trying to enter. Besides, said the colonel, it's only the windows of the gallery that have alarms. Nobody but myself understands how they work, and I had not seen them yet. People laughed loudly at the way in which they had been frightened. But they laughed without conviction and in a more or less shamefaced fashion, for each of them was keenly alive to the absurdity of his conduct. And they had but one thought, to get out of that house, where, say what you would, the atmosphere was one of agonizing anxiety.